running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Those are the words of the 133rd Psalm. But the opening line is easily the most famous. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. What a great week we have had at Maywood Camp. Many of us went there, and, and if I sleep through my own sermon, I'm sorry because we're really tired, but it's been a great week. A lot of good things happened. The young people from here were great. We had a lot of counselors go from here. And it was very encouraging. Most of you by now know that uh, there were four total uh, who became Christians during the week. But two of those were young people associated here at Ninth Avenue, and for that we are so thankful. Maddie Baker and Molly Winters were both baptized, each baptized uh, late on uh, Friday night, and uh, we're so thankful for them, and that just uh, accentuated and sort of put an exclamation point on a great, great week at, uh, at Maywood Christian Camp. Some of you may not know that when the young people go to camp, they get a, a little book it contains some of the rules and other matters about, about camp, but it also contains their Bible school lessons for that week. And at least two of those lessons this past week, the, the focus of camp or the theme of camp was centered, as we talked about last Sunday morning. But two of those lessons had one of the same points made during the lesson. One of the classes dealt with being centered on the church. And in part of that lesson, near the end of it, it spoke about how each one of our young people, no matter their age, should be able to find their particular place in the church in which they could work because they're all part of the one body, helping to build up the body of Christ. And then another lesson during the week dealt with being centered on service. And as you might expect, it talked about much the same thing. But each one of us having various talents and using those talents to glorify God within the church and making sure that we are using our talents to do all that we can to glorify God. Those are great and important lessons. And they remind us of the singular nature of the church and how we are to be building up the church. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, we're reminded that there is one church, the body. We're told later in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5, beginning of verse 25 and running through the end of that chapter, that the picture of the husband and the wife is also a picture of Christ and the church. One husband, one wife, one Christ, one church. Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church. And the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it, church and it, both singular in nature. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told a whole lot of parables. Sometimes that chapter has been called the kingdom parable chapter. And you'll recall that in that chapter, the various parables, all when they speak of or use pictures of the church or the kingdom, do so in singular manners. For example, the man finds one pearl of great price. Another finds one treasure in a field. There is one net or dragnet that brings in the fish later in the chapter. And we could go on and on and on talking about the various scriptures, parables, letters from Paul and Peter and others, and talk about how every time the church is described is singular in nature. There is to be a unity found in it. But for that unity to be known by the world, we must not only turn to scripture. Obviously, we must turn there. But for people to know the unity of the church, they must first see it in us. They will not want to turn for us to point them to various passages and pictures in Scripture. 
until we are living out that unity. Jesus said that all men would know that we are His disciples if we have love one for another. They will not believe unless we show it to them. As we noticed in that psalm that I opened with a few moments ago, it is good and it is pleasant when there is unity among the people of God. Now the psalmist in that psalm may may have used word pictures that you and I would not use. We wouldn't use things like oil running down Aaron's beard or the dews on Mount Hermon. We we probably would not choose that terminology if we were writing a picture or describing how good unity is. But anything we could think of, really, that is good and pleasant, we could put in place of that and at least in some way begin to picture that beautiful pleasantness that is there with unity. But that's also true of outsiders. By that I mean others may not like what we stand for. But they cannot deny the pleasantness of unity. Even if they don't agree with what we stand for, they cannot argue with the joy that it brings. The church at Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, when Paul wrote what we call 1 Corinthians, the first inspired letter to them, was anything but unified. If you read through that particular letter, 16 chapters in length, you're going to find that virtually in every chapter, Paul is addressing some issue, some problem, that is threatening to rip the church apart in that place. And some have suggested, and I tend to agree with them, that the key verse to the entire book of 1 Corinthians is one that we read this morning, and one that we're going to use this morning to study in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. We're using the title this morning, An Appeal to the Church, because that's what Paul said he was making. I appeal to you. You read through the rest of 1 Corinthians. You have struggles and squabbles over everything. There were matters of those who were rich, being at odds with those who were poor, even though both were members of the church. There were Christians who were taking fellow believers to court, and it seems over somewhat trivial matters. There were doctrinal questions, that there were questions about it being argued about, and on and on and on it went. Paul wrote this great letter, yes, to answer their questions, but also to unite them together. And this one verse that I want you to keep your eyes on this morning, 1 Corinthians 1.10, serves as the ultimate standard of what it means to be unified. And I want us to notice it together this morning. But before we get to the actual appeal that Paul made, I want us together to notice the authority upon which Paul made that appeal. Notice that he said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's powerful. Now, of course, we could say, well, Paul was writing by inspiration. He wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And certainly that is true. This is an inspired letter. We could also say that Paul was an apostle. And that's certainly true as well. He was the one hand-selected by Christ to be a chosen vessel. And we see his great authority in many ways, both in the book of Acts and beyond, in many of his letters, such as this one. But even if those things were not true, Even if Paul were not inspired, even if Paul were not an apostle, he could still say, I'm making this appeal for unity on the authority of Christ. You may say, where do you get that? I get that because when we speak of the unity of the Lord's church, we are speaking of something that Jesus Himself had at His very heart. In John chapter 17, 
John is concluding one of the longest sections of Scripture that in some of your Bibles may be all in red letters. You recall in John chapter 13, Jesus washed the disciples' feet or the apostles' feet. And really beginning there, He begins to talk to them because He is in the very last few hours leading up to His betrayal and arrest and and all the things that will lead to the crucifixion. And He talks to the apostles about some things that they simply could not fully understand. Things about the comfort of the Holy Spirit coming to help them. And how He would guide them into all truth. And John chapter 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16 is almost all red letters where Jesus speaks to His apostles in the upper room after the giving of the Lord, the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then in John 17, Jesus enters into a prayer. And that prayer, we're not going to study it in depth, but it breaks down into three different parts. In the first few verses of John 17, Jesus prays for Himself. And we can only say that was right to do, considering the situation in life in which He found Himself. He knew that He was hours away from being on the cross. And so He prayed for Himself. But then He prayed for those in the room with Him, those apostles. That they would be in the world but not of the world. That they would make sure that they would remain faithful. But then amazingly, Jesus prayed for you and me. In John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, what did He pray for? He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. Pause right there. Who's He talking about? He's already prayed for the apostles. Now He's praying for those who will believe in Christ because of what the apostles teach and or write. In other words, He's praying for us. He's praying for believers all the way down through the ages. And what was His prayer? that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here was Jesus in the very shadow of the cross, and His prayer was for the unity of the believers. But did you notice the qualification or the description, I should say, that He put on it? Not just that they all may be one, but then that little phrase, just as you and I, just as the Father and the Son are. Those of you who try to teach children, if you ever try to teach them the difference between God the Father and God the Son, good luck. I don't fully understand it. And none of us can really fully explain the Trinity. And in many ways, that's exactly what Jesus is saying in that prayer. That because the Father and the Son are so very much connected or unified, to use our word, that's exactly what He wants, what Christ wants for His believers. That's almost as if you look at one, you see another. It's almost as if you look at one Christian, you can see another Christian. Because they are so unified, they are one, just as God the Father and God the Son were and are one. And so a few decades later, when Paul would write this letter to the church, excuse me, at Corinth, he was saying, I'm appealing to you on something that was at the very heart of Jesus Christ. That's the authority upon which Paul is writing. Now with that in mind, let's look at the appeal itself. The appeal, based on that authority, is one of unity. In fact, in this one verse that we're using as our main text, Paul could not have said it any more clearly. Four times in this one verse, he writes about unity. He says, one, that you all agree. And Jonathan, my thing is not working. One, that you all agree. 
Two, that there be no divisions among you. Three, that you be united in the same mind. And four, that you be united in the same judgment. Now, Paul could not have been any clearer. Let's take those in turn and notice what he's talking about. First of all, he says, that you all agree. Some of you are reading from the King James Version. And it says that you all speak the same thing. In fact, that's probably a little bit better translation. Because what Paul actually says here, what he wrote in the original language, was a phrase that literally means affirming the same thing. And so there is a side of that, or an insight of that, of speaking something. It's not just mentally holding to something, it's being willing to affirm something that is the same thing. But did you notice that you all agree, or that you all speak the same thing? And some people are going, that's impossible. Because if you get two people, they're not going to agree on everything. And he's writing this to an entire congregation. How can he possibly say that this congregation agree or speak the same thing about everything? Folks, Paul isn't writing about agreeing on matters of opinion. He's writing about where Christ has spoken, where God has spoken, we had better all agree. And we had better all be willing to speak forth the same thing about the truths of Scripture. There are so many matters that just don't matter. Maybe I don't like to meet at 6 o'clock on Sunday night. Maybe I want 5 o'clock. Maybe I want 7 o'clock. The New Testament hasn't spoken. It doesn't make any difference so long as we're meeting on the Lord's Day. Maybe I don't like the font we use in the bulletin. God doesn't tell us what font to use. Who cares? But when it comes to where Christ has said or God has said, here is my will, we must agree. We cannot go out into the world with contradictory messages on what the Bible teaches and then expect people to know what God would have them to do. For that to happen, there must be some serious time spent in the study of God's Word, understanding what it teaches on various matters. It's one reason it's important for us to attend Bible classes. It's one reason it's important for us to study on our own. But we need to all agree where God has spoken and be willing to speak. Also, he said that there be no divisions. You'll recognize this Greek word. The word here is the the Greek word schism. That's the word here. It literally means to rend or to tear. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but the same original word is found in Mark chapter 2 and verse 21. Jesus said, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. The word tear in that verse is this exact same word in 1 Corinthians 1.10. That there be no divisions, no tears among you. I think we can see the point. But folks, that's difficult to live out. When we do not follow the first command in this appeal, to agree to speak the same thing, we can be very tempted at times to just rend or tear the church, to form our own little group that agrees on some particular matter. And we can still be meeting under the same roof. But I have my own little group. And you have your own little group. But again, if there to be unity, there must be a standard. And we must agree on what that standard is. If that standard is people, then anything and everything is going to be allowed. But also, there's going to be division after division after division. As people just get with another personality, or another person with which they agree, or I start my own little group. But if the standard is the Word of God, 
there will be no divisions. Listen, if the standard in all religion was the Word of God, there would not be a single denomination on the face of this earth. It wouldn't exist. Because the standard is the same. We must agree to conform our lives to the standard instead of the other way around. That there be no divisions, no tears, no rends among you. Three, be united in the same mind. That little phrase, be united, actually talks about the last two, be united in the same mind, the same judgment. What Paul actually is doing there is a little bit of a play on words. You can't see it in English. Now, I didn't know it until I was studying for this sermon, frankly. Remember I just told you that the word for divisions can also be translated rends or tears? The word he uses here for be united is also a word that can be translated to mend. He is actually saying, don't rend the church, mend the church. That's the word picture, the play on words that he's actually putting here. But it begins with a mending or a correcting of the mind. The first way to make sure that we are being united begins in what we think. So Paul tells us to be of the same mind. That's as close to a little, literal translation as you can possibly get. Because what, is, what Paul is actually saying is, we should be so united upon the standard of God's Word that it's as if we all think exactly the same things. In reality, if we're focusing on the will of God, we're actually focusing on Scripture, which is the mind of God. So we should be thinking as God thinks. If we spend our time and effort considering His Word and agreeing that we will think as God thinks, we will be of the same mind. And then the natural conclusion of that is, be united in the same judgment. If the first three things here are in place, it's a natural thing to be of the same judgment. The word judgment here literally means what ought to be done. Consider this with me. If we're all speaking the same things, affirming the same things when it comes to the Bible, to doctrinal matters, if we're all working together to make sure there is no rending or tearing of the church into various little factions, if we're then making sure that our mind is set on what God would have it to be set on, and all of us are doing that, then we will know what ought to be done. That's why I say this is a natural conclusion to this list. It will always simply be what God would have us to do. Are there matters of opinion over which we might disagree? Of course there are. But may I remind you even then that God has taught us in Scripture that we can disagree without ever being disagreeable. Because part of the revealed will of God is to be forgiving, to be kind, to be gracious, to be patient, and to always be working together. But when the question comes up, what ought to be done? The church's first answer should always be whatever God said should be done. That's the same judgment. Four times in one verse. Agree, speak the same. No divisions, don't rend the church. Be united in the same mind. Mend the church with your thinking. Be united in judgment. Do what God says to do. But before we close, I want us to do one more thing. And I wish I wasn't doing this, but we need to do it. And that's, what are some things that can keep us from following this appeal, from living up to this commandment? 
I think we all know that the church is one. We talked about those pictures at the beginning. I think most of us know this verse, or even if we can't quote the verse, we, we know the concept that Christians should love one another and work together and, and all those things. I think we know that. I, I think we, we, we pray that a lot. How often does someone stand up here or, or behind that microphone and lead us as a congregation in prayer? And part of that prayer is that we'll work together. We pray that all the time. We know it. But what are some barriers? What are some things that can keep us? I think there are three, and all are found in 1 Corinthians. The first is too much loyalty to personalities. Too much loyalty to personalities. It is great to have strong personalities in the church. It's great to see people whose example you can follow. Even Paul himself, later in this very same letter, would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, only as far as you see me following Christ do you do what I would do. But too often, personalities can begin to take the place of Christ and can begin, if we're not careful, we may not use the word, we may not think it's true, but it is true, they can begin, begin to become our idol. In this very same context, Paul writes that this was one of the problems in the church at Corinth. In verse 12, he says, there were some who were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas or Peter. I follow Christ. This is in one church. That at least four factions, if you want to think of it that way, had grown. Now, could somebody look to Paul and say, there's a great example of a Christian? Absolutely. Could someone look at Apollos and think, there's a good Christian? Folks, who else in the Bible is described as a man mighty in the Scriptures? That's a pretty impressive description, isn't it? And that's Apollos. We don't know a lot about him, but we know that much. Could you not look at Cephas or Peter? And while we like to make fun of Peter from time to time... It was Peter who preached in Acts chapter 2. It was Peter who brought the gospel to uh, the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. It was Peter who was later an elder in life, 1 Peter chapter 5. Could you not look at Peter, Cephas, and say, I I need to be more like him? Yes, these men were examples. But look at the questions that Paul asked. Was I baptized? Was I crucified for you? No. Christ was. Christ was. In our day and time, it could be a favorite Christian author. It could be a preacher. It could be an elder. It could be a favorite Bible class teacher. It could be a Christian business leader that I look up to. It could be any number of people. Look to those people as examples. Look to those people to help you. But never, never, never Let their personalities take the place of the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. We must be very, very careful that we're not quoting this author or that teacher or that preacher more often than we're quoting our Lord and Savior Jesus. What's a barrier to unity? Too much loyalty to a personality. Another barrier is too much looking for prestige. Starting in verse 14... Paul writes that there were only a handful of people that he personally had baptized. We can picture it this way. Only a handful of people that Paul walked down in the water with himself and put under the water. He names a couple of them. He even says, oh, I baptized somebody else. But anybody else, I, I don't remember. And as he concluded that discussion, he wrote in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, Paul was not saying that baptism was not essential, 
or that baptism was not important. That's not what he's saying at all. But what he was saying was, it didn't matter to him if he personally walked down in the water with someone and put them under the water, or if someone else did it, so long as the cross of Christ was being preached. So long as Christ was being exalted, he didn't care who did the converting, who did the baptizing. That's not what was important to him. So long as the truth was reaching hearts, well, God will give the increase, no matter who's actually putting people under the water. Too often, it can become very easy for us to use the church for some little circle of my own kind of Christian prestige. I can want the church to look how I want it to look. Are you always looking for your own way? Do you want things to be done the way you want them to be done because you think the church owes you something? Have you ever threatened the elders? I'm going to withhold my contribution. I'm going to go somewhere else just because you're not getting your own way. Listen, I say this with all the love I can possibly muster. But if you do, you're more concerned with your own little world of prestige than with the unity of the church, and that's wrong. It's just wrong. It can also show itself in other ways. Look, when I preach a sermon, I stand down here, and, and yeah, I'm singing the words of the psalm, but honestly, I'm praying. I'm praying that someone or someones will come down these aisles. I, I do that every Sunday. I, I, maybe that's a sin. Maybe I'm half, half singing. I don't know. But I, I'm praying that someone will come forward. But does it bother me when someone responds when Tyler preaches? Or when Ricky fills in and preaches? Or when we have a guest speaker? Does that bother me? Not in the least. If people come forward, I don't care if I'm preaching, I don't care if Tyler is preaching, I don't care if a guest speaker is preaching, if the truth of God's Word touches their hearts, praise be to God and not that preacher. It's far too easy for us to think this is the church of Christ, but in reality, I want to be the church of me. It's too much looking for prestige. And then number three is too much legalism on particulars. One of the major problems at Corinth was that they held to various matters of opinion as if they were matters of doctrine. These particulars, these opinions, are things that don't really matter in the end, but they were using them as ways to divide up the church, to form their own little groups. They still met, as it were, in the same building. They have a church building, but they still all met in the same place. But there are all these different groups all being together, and they were fighting and factioning over stuff that didn't matter. Can that still be a struggle today? Oh, yeah. Are there things that I like? Are there things that I may even think if we did it this way, it might be a little better or more efficient? Sure there are. We all have opinions on those kind of matters. We all have thoughts about how things could be handled maybe more efficiently or better. And those are true. But if it's not a matter of thus says the Lord, it's not worth tearing the congregation over. As I was preparing for this lesson, I really wish I hadn't done this. But I actually looked up things that have divided congregations. If you want to ruin one day of your life, if you want to absolutely ruin one day of your life, just jump on the internet and look up things that have literally split congregations. I read of a church that literally split over whether in worship they should say hallelujah or alleluia. In other words, they split over how to say praise God. You think that's bad. I read of another congregation who went to the original languages and split the church over whether the, the appropriate 
pronunciation of a Hebrew preposition was yav or vav. They split the church over that. I have heard of people splitting churches over whether the emblems on the Lord's table should be metal or wood. I have read of congregations splitting over what color the carpet should be. Now those may sound silly, and quite frankly they are silly. If they weren't tragic, they would be funny, but they're tragic. But listen, the next time you get your feelings hurt, or you think something isn't being done just the way it should be, you better watch yourself. See if you're not tempted to think, well, I'm, I'm just going somewhere else. And also see if you aren't tempted to go out to lunch, to go to work the next day, to go to your neighbors and talk about how foolish that was at church. And then we get angry because people don't come. I can't believe they do that stuff down at church. Hey, you want to go worship me next Sunday? I don't think so. Do you? I wouldn't go there either. I wouldn't want to go either, would you? If God said it, that settles it. If God left it to our judgment, those particulars, yeah, they're worth discussing because they might matter as efficiency, but they're worth just letting go because in the end they don't matter. When we avoid those things, though, when we avoid those barriers, what's the result of unity? For, for that, we circle back around to the prayer of Jesus. Father, that they may all be one, just as you and I are one. That they all may be one in us. Why? That the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen, if you're looking for a line to put on Twitter or Facebook, here it is. Too often, people cannot hear Jesus over the infighting of His own people. Can I say that one again? Too often, people cannot hear Jesus over the infighting of His own people. And so what Paul's appeal the appeal that Paul made, I should say, is in reality the appeal of Jesus. Because it was at His very heart. And it's the appeal that we continue to make today. But it's not just an appeal we make to people out there. Oh, become a part of the one church. Yes, we make that appeal, Ephesians 4. Oh, become a part of the one body. Yes, we make that appeal. Oh, become a part of the kingdom. Yes, we make that appeal. But folks... Before we make that appeal out there, we better make that appeal in here. That you all be of the same mind. That there be no divisions among you. And that there be no, or that you be of the same mind. And of the same judgment. I ask this question lovingly. But I ask this question very bluntly. And I promise you, I've asked it of myself preparing this lesson. Am I more concerned about it being the church of me than I am about it being the church of Christ?
Am I more concerned about it being the church of me than I am the church of Christ? If there is so much of a hint of that in the way that I talk, in the way that I live, in the way that I think, then brothers and sisters in Christ, I need to repent of that. I need to get it right. Because there's a world out there that needs to know that the people in here love one another and are grounded firmly upon Scripture and on Scripture alone. This morning, do you need to be a part of that one body? Or do you as a Christian need to say, you know what, maybe I have been drifting a little bit. Maybe I have been thinking myself more, more than I've been thinking about what it really means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you to become a part of the body or to return in faithfulness as we stand and sing to encourage you.